Welcome to another episode of Immigration and Mobility Decoded, a podcast about business immigration and global mobility. We are so excited for you to join us for episode five. And Finn, welcome back. Uh, we missed you last week. Uh, you were traveling in Italy. Uh, how, how, how was that trip? Excited to be back. Uh, traveling was pretty smooth. Uh, enjoyed a lot of pizza, as you might expect. Um, <laughs> Well, our, I, I was getting a lot of requests from our guests, and they they heard through the grapevines that you were traveling in Italy, and they want to know, how much pizza did you eat? Every single day, at least one. It's pretty <laughs> shocking over there. Like, when they serve you a full pizza, it's like everybody gets their own massive pizza. And I'm <laughs> a big guy, but I still can't usually eat that much. And there's like a, you know, 65-year-old Italian grandma who's maybe... Five one, you know, ninety five pounds. Who finishes the whole thing next to me? So it's just embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, you ate pizza every day. I think, I think that's that's my dream. Uh, so I'm very, very envious of you. And but overall, glad to have you back. Uh, we missed you again. Missed you last week. Um, Finn, can you tease our guest conversation that'll be coming up in a bit? Um, we talked with Cecilia Esterline from the Niskanen Center, but um, what more can our guest, uh, sure, our guest, know about her? Yeah, we're really excited to share the conversation with Cecilia. So she's an immigration research analyst at the Niskanen Center, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Uh, they publish a lot of policy proposals and engage with lawmakers uh, on a range of issues, but Cecilia focuses on immigration and a lot on employment-based immigration. So she has a lot of insights to share on what's going on in immigration policy in D.C. that uh, we're excited to, to share with the audience. Um, Cecilia has written op-eds for publications like The Hill. She's been quoted on CNBC. She has a lot of interesting ideas on how to improve the employment-based uh, immigration system with uh, some relatively easy and quick fixes that the administration or Congress could implement if there was the willingness to do so. So definitely excited to share that conversation, Eric. Definitely. That'll be coming up in a few minutes. Uh, but Finn, I also wanted to ask you about uh, probably the biggest piece of news in the U.S. immigration space in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the H-1B electronic registration officially closed uh, last Monday on March 27th. Uh, it was extended for a few days because USCIS was experiencing some technical glitches with their platform. But Finn, what are you seeing and hearing when it comes to this, this, this year's uh, cap season? I think biggest thing that we've been expecting is an increase in the number of registrations, but is there anything else that you're, 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 you're uh, hearing? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Ian Love, who's a partner at Global Immigration Associates, had a great LinkedIn post about the H-1B cap this year. There's a lot of chatter around two things, right? So number one, last year there were 483,000 registrations in the H-1B cap lottery. This year, from what Ian's hearing from his colleagues, other immigration attorneys, uh, in the space who work with corporate clients in the U.S., most companies are seeing about 5 to 20% of the H-1B cap registrations that they submitted being selected in the lottery. So that means if a company uh, submitted uh, an H-1B cap registration for 20 individuals, they're seeing anywhere between one and four of those getting selected for USCIS to actually process and review that H-1B application. So that's on par with last year, but 5% lower lower last year the average is about 18 percent selection rate um so it's very likely that there's over 500,000 registrations this year which is uh 
pretty incredible. USCIS has yet to release those numbers, um, which we're eagerly waiting for because last year they released the registration numbers a bit earlier. Uh, and there's a lot of chatter around how many of these registrations are duplicates. So are there companies that filed uh, an H-1B registration uh, for one employee and then another company who filed an H-1B registration for that same employee? How many of those duplicates exist out there? Um, it's hard to know, but there's definitely some anticipation around USCIS, one, releasing the overall number and two, providing some clarity on duplicates. They did have some technical glitches. You mentioned that uh, that extension that occurred in March for the registration uh, period. Um, so we're wondering if maybe the the slow um, the, the slow release on uh, these these numbers are because of those technical glitches. But we'll certainly report back to the audience on what we hear. Definitely, thank you for for that recap on cap season, and definitely super interested to see those numbers. Um, yeah, that keeps posted. Yeah, and on a non-U.S. immigration front, you had a you had a pretty interesting story that you were looking at uh, going on in Germany. Yes. So the last couple of months, uh, reports have been coming out that the German government is or was was seeking to modernize, overhaul uh, its its immigration program. And last week, it seemed to be uh, take a good step forward. CNBC, as well as other media outlets, reported that uh, the German government is preparing to pass a new nationality law that will, quote, make it easier for foreigners to gain citizenship in the country. Um, Additionally, CNBC reports that this would allow people to apply for citizenship after five years. Uh, and these reforms are modeled after Canada's points-based immigration system uh, that helps skilled workers enter the country. And so it's been interesting to kind of see the progression of, you know, these, what started as discussions and, and then now to see, it seemingly seems that the government's going to take action on it. Um, one of the biggest reasons the German government is seeking to overhaul its immigration system is uh, it comes down to demographics. Uh, Germany is similar in other countries in that it's experiencing a low birth rate, but also an aging workforce, an aging population. And as those workers are retiring and leaving the workforce, there aren't enough of younger generations to replace them. And they're also lacking in a number of uh, highly skilled workers. Further in this CNBC article, uh, they shared a January survey that showed that more than half of German companies are struggling to fill vacancies due to a lack of skilled workers. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll we'll keep we're, we'll keep tabs on this. Um, but it is super interesting to see another country, another government. Um, you know, kind of kind of introducing these these measures to modernize and overhaul their immigration system. And Finn, to your point, um, you know, compared it to the United States, uh, which you know, immigration reform uh, on any level is 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 uh, not likely at all um, in, in the near future. Unfortunately, it isn't. And, uh, you know, that story really highlights how other countries, you know, Germany, the UK, Canada are continuing to innovate their immigration systems to fill these talent gaps. 
Um, luckily, our guest, Cecilia, has some great suggestions on how the U.S. government could follow suit. Um, so we're looking forward to sharing that conversation with you all up ahead. And with that, we're pleased to welcome Cecilia Esterline, Immigration Research Analyst at the Niskanen Center. Cecilia, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I'm excited to be here. So, Cecilia, we're super excited to ask you all about your research at the Scanning Center on immigration policy. Uh, but before we start talking shop, just want to get to know you a little bit and introduce you to the audience. Uh, you live down in D.C., which is the hub for many a think tank. Um, but as a, as a D.C. resident, uh, what is your favorite spot to eat out there, favorite restaurant? It's such a hard question because DC has so many good restaurants and I think it's also grown a lot recently and have so many new restaurants that I've been trying to try out. But my go-to is always Oyamel. It's one of the Jose Andres restaurants in Penn Quarter. They do like small plates, Mexican food. And I've never had a bad meal there and I always have a good time. It's a good environment. It's always a fun time. I think that's one of the more under uh, less known things about DC is that it has a very fairly solid food scene. Very, very. I, it, like a lot of it has opened also since the pandemic. A lot of them have gone through changes, whether it's been like the same management taking over and trying like a new concept, or if it's just been new restaurants opening. So I think it's been changing a lot, and it's been really fun to kind of explore again now that everything's back open. So it's springtime now. It's, we're recording this end of March. It's officially the first day of spring right now. Not only do a bunch of eighth grade classes go down to DC in the spring, but it's one of the highest times of the year for tourism. If you have any visitors coming down to visit you in DC, Cecilia, what's on the agenda? Where are you taking them first? The number one thing I do when I have a visitor, and even by myself, number one thing I like to do in DC is go to the top of the Washington Monument and some people don't even know that you can because it was closed for separate years after an earthquake. But you can see the entire city because of all the height restrictions. No building can be taller than it. So you can go up there and see the whole city. And I think it is the most underrated thing ever. I tell everyone to go there, even if you're a local, even if you've lived in D.C. for a long time. And the museum inside of the Washington Monument is actually super cool and has all these state contributions. So I tell everyone to go there. I I went uh, to D.C. the first time when I was an eighth grader. So I was one of those eighth graders who took a trip there. And it was actually probably like the third time I was ever on an airplane. I was going to D.C. with my eighth grade class. And um, we were there for, I think, four, four days and three nights. And it, we couldn't go to the monument. It was closed. I think we were only able to go into the ground level. Um, but I had so much fun uh, just exploring D.C. And then all, I love um, all the museums there. Um, and then I've been there one more time in 2015. There was a music festival. I had a buddy that was living in the area. And when he was at work one day, I just Ubered, Ubered into, into the Capitol and did, you know, Capitol tour, walking all the museums. I quickly, or maybe not quickly, but soon found out that I uh, should have packed better and brought a better pair of shoes because after all that walking at the, end of the, at the end of the day, my feet were hurting. The mall is deceivingly large. I, yes. I think that you, it looks kind of like they're all going to be pretty close and, and it's actually pretty far to walk mm. the mall. But I think the best time is honestly to walk the mall at night. It's so nice to be able to walk it when it's not super hot out. 
there are fewer tourists or just fewer people in general. And it's just nice to be able to walk around and see the monuments at night. But unfortunately, you can't go up inside Washington Monument at night. So that is a daytime activity, but I still recommend it to everyone. Any of my family and friends who are listening are going to be upset with me because I lived in D.C. for four years and embarrassingly never did that, went up to the top of the Washington Monument. So maybe it was just laziness or I didn't know it was a thing. I don't know. I only showed everyone, any any of my visitors from from the ground. So Uh, speaking of which, you've lived in D.C. for a little while now. And we were talking about it before we started recording. You've had a couple of stints there. Uh, DC is pretty well known as a city where there's a lot of transplants and it has its own sort of culture, work culture, um, obviously politics play, play a big role in that. What would you say your biggest welcome to DC moment was? Yeah, I think that growing up, I always wanted to live in DC. So I remember flying in, I was here in 2016 in the summer for, of 2016 print internship. And just landing at Reagan and seeing the monuments, I think maybe I have a thing for the monuments that it's very sentimental to me, that landing at Reagan and you see all the monuments as you're landing, and it was just kind of this surreal moment for me that, oh, I get to live here. And that was just a very short stint. I was here for maybe two, three months at that time. And then when I moved back after graduating undergrad, that was that time when I was like commuting into work and passing the monuments. And now I live very close to the hill and like close to the mall and just kind of realizing sometimes it's easy to get sucked into the day-to-day life of it, but just realizing that, you know, this is the place I live and and all of these things that are these historical monuments are legitimately in my backyard. So I think sometimes it's just a day-to-day reminding me that I live in this city that is so cool. And like all of these important things are happening here and we do have a lot of diversity you know, uh, the passport events that they have in May of every year for where they open all the embassies. It's another one of my favorite things about DC where you can go and just see all the monuments or not see all the monuments, but see all the embassies and see uh, like everyone's culture and from all the different countries and the, all the people that work at the embassies. It's just such an interesting place to live. And it is very, it's ever changing because it's a very transient city, but at the same time, some of these monuments and the historic significance of them is pretty consistent. And so for me, it's just like a day-to-day thing of reminding myself that I get to live here. Yeah, it's definitely very weighty when you go there. I mean, it isn't any any national, any capital of any uh, country. You go to Paris and you spend any time in like Versailles or, or London and you just see all those monuments that have been there for hundreds of years. It's super, super weighty. So I feel like that's a common feeling there. Uh, Eric, I want to pass it off to you to uh, tee up the first couple questions here. Well, actually, before we get there, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about the, 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 the passport event, you called it. And so they just open up, all the embassies are open and you can just kind of explore? Yeah, they have. It's uh, I think they kind of separate it based on region. Um, and I haven't been since prior to COVID. So, you know, maybe it has changed a little bit since then. But basically, each embassy kind of takes a day or each region takes a day where several of them open up their doors and they will have performances inside. They hold off crafts. They will have people who show a traditional art or traditional clothing or traditional food. And they will have these performances. And you can just walk into the embassies that are doing this. Sometimes there's some long lines, but it has always been worth it. You go into the different embassies and you meet people that will maybe teach you how to say something in the local language or show you a craft or you get to take something home or anything like that. It's every single one of them has been super cool 
to see. And some of them I'm like, maybe I've never heard of this country or I couldn't point it out on a map. But it's super interesting to see that they have a cultural center in D.C., in my city. And there are people that work there and are from there that are living in my city. So I should know more about them. It's it's just a super interesting event. And totally. usually happens every May. Yeah, no, that sounds so awesome. I'm jealous that that, 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 <laughs> that you're able to participate in that. Um, well, as much as Finn and I would love to talk DC food and culture, uh, let's hop into our discussion on immigration. And Cecilia, you are an immigration research analyst at the Niskanen Center. How did you get into researching and analyzing immigration policy in the think tank space? Sure. So actually, I've been interested in policy a long time, but I started back when I was a freshman in college. One of my first internships was at a refugee resettlement organization. And one of the things about working in direct services, it's really great to get to meet a lot of people who are on the front lines of this, whether that's the employees working there or the individuals who are receiving services. But what I saw was, and the thing that probably arguably frustrated me the most about my time there was when I saw that we were bringing in these people who had all of these skills and they had very distinguished careers and they were kind of unable to utilize them here right at first when they arrived because of credentialing requirements or different frustrations that they had in applying those skills and transferring their employment to the U.S. because they were coming as refugees. So for me, that kind of sparked this interest in, you know, like frustration always breathes into me looking into how I can change something. And so I think that, that kind of sparked my interest in it. And then I had the opportunity to work in direct services for legal services and in other types of that. And then when I went to grad school, I was working another think tank on similar research. And so I'm really glad to have landed at, at Niskanen and to contribute to the work they have there. And it's been really interesting thus far, but I think it kind of came from Rex service experience that I was really frustrated with the limits of what I was seeing there on the ground. Mm -hmm. That sounds like such a great journey. And you mentioned, and you're obviously at Niskanen. Um, for those who are listening and are unfamiliar with, with Niskanen, can you tell us more about uh, the Niskanen Center and what work it does on immigration policy? Yeah, so Niskanen holds a pretty unique place in the think tank field, I would say. Niskanen, we like to say that we are transpartisan. We're kind of bridging the gap between bipartisan in which someone may have to give up something that they want in order to kind of agree with the other side, but transpartisan and that we can find some solution that is actually acceptable to all parties involved. And we kind of let go of the ideas of ideology and just kind of focus on practicality and what can be implemented and what is realistic and what would serve our interests overall. And so in immigration, that takes a lot of different forms, but um, I primarily work on employment-based immigration, international student retention, and doing some economic analysis work. But we also work on things related to refugee resettlement, Private sponsorship is particularly of interest to us. And in general, just other kinds of policies that can be protective. We also have work on DACA. So anything that we can do to just better the system in a way that is amenable to all the parties that uh, are involved. And I'll just add for, for the audience, if they're interested in learning more about the Niskanen Center, obviously they could just go on their website, but Time Magazine did a really cool spread a couple of weeks ago. I think the title of the piece was uh, the most interesting think tank in American politics. 
that's all about the work that the Scanning Center is doing um, and that Cecilia is a part of. Um, on that note, Cecilia, you you and a few other of your colleagues at Niskanen uh, released a blog or a paper at the beginning of the year that I wanted to ask you about. And I'll just set the stage here for, for the audience, but the paper was uh, titled Five Immigration Proposals the Biden Administration Should Consider This Year. Um, I'll just shortly, shortly summarize those five proposals. Uh, one is the Department of Labor should update its Schedule A occupation list. Two is the government uh, should recapture unused green cards and prevent future green card waste. Three is the government should expand the J-1 au pair program to include care for seniors. Uh, four is the government should expand private sponsorship to include institutions of higher education. And five is the government should restart domestic visa validation. So a lot of very nuanced uh, and, and, and highly um, you know, policy-minded uh, suggestions there. I guess I'll set you up with a question here. Which of those five do you think is the most important of uh, of the policies that the Biden administration should implement. Uh, and then if you want to just unpack the rest for us, that'd be awesome as well. Sure. It's super hard to choose which one would be most important. I think that they all really contribute different things. And what we aim to do with this piece was really focus on, you know, right now, obviously, our system needs a big update because it hasn't really had comprehensive update in over 30 years. So it does need a substantial update, but that would require legislative action. And in the current political climate, if that is not currently feasible in the immediate time frame, there is still something that can be done on an executive level, unilaterally. There are authorities that they have to take action and, and things that could impact our employment-based immigration system or even just in general, the immigration system in general that could update it in a way that would create significant benefits for Americans, American businesses, and immigrants themselves. So I think that they're all important in different ways, but a lot of my work has focused on Schedule A, and that is a pretty narrow action that could be taken that might not necessarily anger too many people, and it would be a very easy thing for them to update because they have unilateral authority under the Department of Labor. They can update this and I can explain it further if you'd like uh, to explain what it is. Basically, Schedule A is a list of occupations that are designated by the Department of Labor as having a shortage of available and qualified American workers and also that the introduction of immigrants into that field would not hurt American workers who are in the same field. So. That list is supposed to be responsive to the labor market changes, and yet it has remained stagnant in for 30 years. I will tell you, I was not alive the last time that it was updated, and yet I still know that the you know, labor market has changed. There are jobs that didn't exist 30 years ago, and our labor market needs have changed. And the way that we need labor and where we need those labor, where that labor to go has changed. So for that list to be so outdated, what it does is that it does not provide any specific visas for individuals or occupations in that category. Basically, it just gives them the ability to, the Department of Labor can rely on market analysis that they've already done, and then they can have a little bit of an expedited pathway because they just have slightly less of a delay than employers hiring for other occupations might have. So for me, I've done most of my work on Schedule A. Other things in there, green card recapture is another one that's really important because 
we have the, a very small number of green cards available every year. And for some of them to go unused simply due to errors or delays or backlogs or country caps or whatever it is that causes these cards to be unable to be utilized is really unfortunate because we have such a large waiting list right now for green cards. There are close to four or five million individuals who have already been approved for a green card yet are in this wait list to get a green card because of the small limitations that we have on the number of green cards. So recapturing and being able to utilize green cards that have already been approved for use and we're not increasing the size of the green card population available because that would require legislative action, but just being able to utilize the ones that have already been issued or promised to a population of immigrants would be super helpful. Um, and then I can touch briefly on the other ones if you would like as well. Yeah, Cecilia, I'm actually uh, hoping to talk to you a little bit more about the, the proposal of expanding the, the J-1 au pair program to include care for seniors. One thing that stood out about this uh, research is that uh, I feel this is one of the first times I've heard of this proposal, which I found super interesting. And I'm also attracted to it because in a prior job, I worked at a uh, small media or medium-sized media company that specialized in senior care, home care, home health care, senior housing, et cetera. Um, so can you unpack uh, this proposal a little bit more? I feel it's something I've started to also see a little bit more of from uh, other senior publications, uh, such as like McKnight's Senior Living. And it makes sense because I think we all know just the baby boomer generation, the, they're just retiring in mass and it, it's going to come up eventually. But uh, what more can you share about this proposal? Sure. The J-1 program is sometimes thought of because the title of it is really a cultural exchange program. So sometimes it's really thought of as an opportunity for us to pursue public diplomacy through providing the opportunity for foreigners to come and learn about the U.S. culturally. And so often we see this with childcare. These individuals come as au pairs and they care for children. However, if we were to expand this to seniors, I think that it's well understood that a child has less life experience perhaps than someone who is 80 or 90. And being able to hear the stories and have that greater cultural component would appeal to that idea that the J-1 is designed to be a cultural exchange program. But at the same time, we would be able to utilize this program that we already have in place and we could just expand it slightly to not just include childcare, but also elder care in order to meet the needs that we know are coming. And so our birth rate is, is much slower than maybe we would have in the retirement rate and the rate that we're seeing in the shortages of elder care. It's, it's quite significant. So that is a field that we just simply don't have enough Americans available and willing to take those jobs. And you know, one thing that we also talk about is that there are possibilities that also when we have already a mismatch between the number of unemployed workers, it's much smaller than the number of open jobs. Not only could there be a lot of open jobs in the elder care sector, but also we can think about individuals who maybe left the workforce in order to take care of an elder parent. And maybe if there were an increased availability of elder care, those individuals might choose to join the workforce again, which could actually increase the size of our workforce, not just directly by you know bringing in one to one an immigrant to fill that job, but also by you know being a complementary worker and allowing someone else to join the workforce who had previously left. 
So for us, this is a really interesting proposal and it's an opportunity to meet a domestic need, you know, and still pursue our diplomatic interest by giving these people an opportunity to hear from elder Americans who have a lot of experience and a lot of world perspective, but also a lot of perspective about what life in the U.S. is like. And so this is something that we're really interested in and, and we're talking to state about and we're hoping that they might consider this as a policy moving forward. Definitely. How many of the proposals uh, of the proposals, which would require congressional action versus potentially executive action versus potentially uh, a department or agency introducing a, a new final rule? So these are all policies that we designed specifically to not require legislative action. They are things that the agencies or the administration could do on their own. And so they would require different things. Uh, Schedule A, for instance, would require a regulatory change um, versus green card recapture and the new policy that we would request for this Department of State to prevent future green card waste would be a policy. The J-1 would also be a policy. So some of them would require agency work, but none of them would require congressional action, which is what we aimed to kind of avoid. We obviously would love for congressional action to be taken on immigration, but in the short term, when that's not necessarily immediately feasible, these are things that they could be do. They could do all on their own. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I, I think we all know, just given the current makeup of Congress, the likelihood of any any changes coming out of there. Um, for those who are listening or watching, we'll include a link to um, the research and the study. And for those who maybe want to get involved, uh, how might one go about that if they you know, are reading these proposals and like, yeah, we should do that? Yeah, so I think that for these administrative proposals, it's a bit more difficult for grassroots action. But we always encourage people to contact their legislators because oftentimes, even if we can't take legislative action right now, legislators do still have the ability to call on the administration to do things that perhaps a layperson might not. So I encourage them to reach out to also just talk about this, to disseminate this information publicly across their networks, if they're on Twitter or wherever it is, to disseminate this information and talk about the validity of these ideas and also about the benefits of immigration for the general population when we're experiencing inflation and labor shortages and all these things, immigration really could be a very positive thing for us and already is. So just recognizing those benefits and continuing to educate people, I think is one of the most important things we can do. Well said, well said. And Cecilia, another piece that you recently authored um, concerns the H-1B visa fees and we are in the midst of H-1B electronic registration, H-1B lottery. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how the government spends the revenue gained from immigration application fees, such as the H-1B fees? Right. So every time that an employer applies for an H-1B, this is like past the registration process, but when they're actually applying, they pay what is called the American Competitiveness and Workforce Improvement Act, I, fee, I believe it's called. And this fee is designed and it was designated through legislation, and it was designed to support the reskilling and workforce development of the American workforce, basically recognizing that if we are needing immigrants because we do not have these skills domestically to create a longer-term solution, immigration is a short-term solution to that, of course, but if we are creating a longer-term solution, we can start investing in the training 
of American workers in these things. So what we saw during the pandemic, for instance, is they approved several million dollars to invest in rural healthcare workers or in the training of rural healthcare workers because we had a significant shortage of healthcare workers in rural areas of the United States. And this is something that continues to happen and it actually wasn't a post-pandemic problem. This was has been present since before the pandemic. So in that way, we have money that is going, every time we are hiring a foreigner for the H-1B, we are sending money to educate and you know develop the skills of Americans, which is a really important narrative for us to understand. And so that is something that could be expanded because I think you guys showed in your your recent report that even when the fee increases, you know, these employers are so desperate for their workers, they are willing to still bring them in. They're still willing to apply for them to have these uh, workers. So we could utilize some of that fee increase. Of course, we need fee increases to help support USCIS work, but also even with the fee increase, uh, we could also utilize some more of that from other visa programs or other employment-based programs to help additionally support the, you know, development of the American workforce and create these upscaling programs that really prepare us for our future so that we can reduce some of that dependency. It's not going to go away because our birth rate and death rate are just like not in a way that we're not replacing, you know, the people that we are losing from our workforce at the same rate, but just to reduce that dependency and, and change the way it is and the permanency of that dependency by improving the skills and qualifications that Americans have. Yeah, I think it's really important that, that you all highlighted that because I think it's it's an aspect of uh, U.S. immigration policy that's often overlooked. Um, but unfortunately, there are still a lot of occupations in the U.S. where there is a labor shortage. And I kind of want to dive back into Schedule A because I know that's where a good chunk of, of your research uh, is focused on. And I want to translate um, you know, your research a little bit over to folks in our audience who might be coming from the corporate immigration uh, space, so global mobility specialists, uh, immigration managers who are managing a foreign national workforce uh, at U.S. companies and companies overseas, because I think that your research really will uh, will, will will echo kindly to, to some uh, struggles that they have, right? So could you unpack just what Schedule A is, what the list is, and how uh, expanding that list would actually benefit uh, a lot of employers who are struggling to bring in the, the talent they need and secure green cards for them. So I would say that there's the labor certification process for permanent employment-based sponsorship. And that is a really important part of our immigration process because it allows us to know with certainty that the visas that we are providing to foreigners are going for jobs that we just don't have available American workers for, and also to know that when we are bringing those foreigners in to fill those jobs, that it's not going to harm American workers. So it's a really important part of our process. But unfortunately, at the same time, there are processing delays and backlogs at the Department of Labor that mean this can this process of approval for that can last a very long time. And given the fact that right at the beginning, when employers are filing their labor certification, they are arguing to the Department of Labor that they have a business need that needs to be filled and they just don't have anyone available to fill it, even though they tried to recruit domestically first. And so if they are already saying that and then they are having to wait six months, a year, however long it takes for the Department of Labor to go through that process, 
you know, after they have already done all of that and demonstrated that they don't have someone available domestically, that's a really difficult position for employers to be in, to not have labor that they have a demonstrated need for, for so long. And of course, that's not to mention the delays that happen at USCIS and state afterwards, but to not even be able to begin the immigration process until you've already gone through this process with the Department of Labor, it can be really detrimental to, to employers. So, in a way, Schedule A has a list of occupations that the Department of Labor has said, we've seen some this, you know, occupation pass through our doors a thousand times already. We know there's a shortage of, of American workers in this space. And we recognize based on our own analysis that this is a, you know, industry-wide occupational shortage and that you can hire foreigners into this space without impacting negatively, you know, American workers. And so Schedule A is just that list of the saying that they've seen it so many times that they know based on the labor market analysis. And then they don't have to go through that process with DOL first, and they can go directly to USCIS. The problem is that, like I said, the list hasn't been updated in 30 years. And so right now, the only ones that are on that list really are the physical therapists and nurses. And we might still have a genuine business need for those. And, you know, there might still be a shortage of them domestically, but we don't know because we haven't looked at that data in 30 years. And so not only can we revalidate those and show that maybe that shortage is still continuing in that field, but we could also add other occupations that might have a similar shortage. And we're not being prescriptive when we're asking the Department of Labor to do this. So we're not telling them like, you know, you need to add X, Y, or Z occupation because we really want it to be data driven. But we have done research on which ones are going through that process with the perm applications and which ones are being approved for their labor certification process the most. And it is like physicians, surgeons, engineers, teachers. I mean, even things like truck drivers where you see these shortages domestically and you see that repeated as they approve time after time labor certification applications for these you know occupations time and time again and so they'd be able to look at that data and just you know release a list that is updated and reflective of our current labor market needs to help those businesses even if they can't avoid the weights that are obviously going to come at USCIS and, and state but they can you know put them six months to a year ahead of schedule I think it's just really helpful for American businesses and Americans. And, you know, as you pointed out in your your piece as well, your report, that when they don't have the opportunity and when they have extended wait times to be able to get American workers here or foreign workers here to the U.S., they could send them elsewhere. So I think it's really an important thing for the U.S. to look at that it is facilitating these things where it can. Yeah, that was really great background. I think our audience will will put those puzzle pieces together and, and see how that's fitting into into their day to day uh, day to day um, realities with you know just struggling through the green card process, the green card backlog. One theme that continuously has been coming up the past few weeks in conversations we've had and in our recent immigration trend survey uh, is the fact that the Department of Labor is getting a pretty bad rap right now when it comes to. Uh, immigration uh, processing, processing immigration cases. Uh, I'll just say for the audience, they've probably heard it before, but uh, we teed up a question for 500 companies across the U.S., uh, gave them the three most, uh, three agencies, government agencies that deal with employment-based immigration the most, Department of Labor, USCIS, and the Department of State, and asked, hey, which of these tends to be the biggest barrier to you hiring and sponsoring the foreign talent you need? And the Department of Labor won that contest resoundingly 61% of companies said DOL is the, the, the primary uh, the primary barrier 
to sponsoring foreign talent. Cecilia, why do you why do you think that is? I mean, what you just laid out with Schedule A not being updated for 30 plus years is concerning enough, but what else is going on behind the scenes uh, or in public with the Department of Labor that's making it uh, such a, a, a an issue, such a, a, a an issue for employers to uh, struggle with? I would underscore again that they do play a really important role. They, you know, are the ones that are checking to make sure we're paying immigrants an appropriate wage comparable to Americans. They are making sure that we are hiring, you know, foreigners that we have a legitimate need for. And so they play a really important role, but their backlogs really end up delaying everyone else's. So a lot of government offices or, you know, agencies have felt backlogs, especially since the pandemic. You know, with Department of State, we see that with consular closures or, you know, travel bans that change the the speed at which things happened. And with USCIS, everything trying to go online when they're so paper based. But for the Department of Labor, I think it's realistically just a fact of, you know, they have all this built up because there is so much need right now. And there is an intense labor need and we're just not meeting it fast enough. And so for the Department of Labor to have wait times just for prevailing wage adjudications or labor certification, you know, approvals that are several months, you know, to a year, that is really difficult for employers because they can't even begin their, you know, real immigration process without them going through that process. So I think that, you know, the Department of Labor has their own issues with, you know, needing to increase efficiency whether that is, you know, you know, that they need more appropriations. I'm not really sure what their problem is, that they're causing all of these delays. But I think that the fact that they're usually at the start of the process and really blocking them from being able to go to USCIS and to state, which I think that in the public eye have gotten more of the blowback recently because consular delays have been really in the news recently and a lot of people have been up in arms about that. There's legislative work that is being formed around that. And, you know, that's something that they, this Department of State has been really public about addressing. And USCIS has been historically the, you know, uh, one that everyone likes to throw under the bus about their issues because they were so paper-based and maybe continue to be. Um, so for the Department of Labor, it's they kind of flew under the radar for a while, but right now they are at the roadblock that people can't get to the other agencies without passing through them. So I, I think that they're really in a difficult position, but they need to increase their efficiency in order to meet their needs or take advantage of the opportunities like Schedule A that they have to, you know, that they can get some of those people out of line quicker by, you know, they already have this policy in place. If they update it, then they can get these people processed through faster. It will reduce their administrative burden and they would be able to work on the people that they don't have a Schedule A or type policy for. If they could get those people out of line through Schedule A update, it'd be everyone, you know, would benefit from that. Cecilia, another piece uh, that I've, uh, I'm finding everything that you've written super, super interesting. Um, but one, one, another one that I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about is from earlier March in 2023 on, uh, you uncovered some previously unreported data about the number of uh, international students uh, graduating from U.S.-based uh, colleges and then going to moving to Canada, and in your piece, you write—excuse me—you uh, write um, between 2017 and 2021, 
approximately 45,000 invitations uh, from Canada's express entry system went to skilled workers who received their post-secondary education in the U.S., uh, and you say 88% of whom were not U.S. citizens. Is this concerning? Absolutely. I absolutely think we should be concerned about this. And I think it's very interesting because this is just one program. This is data specifically for their express entry program. This doesn't count people who are sponsored by an employer. This doesn't count people who maybe, you know, what is frequently a pathway for international students who don't find a, you know, sustainable pathway to stay in the U.S. Is they might, you know, maybe they did their bachelor's here or their master's here, and then they do, you know, another master's or a PhD in Canada in order to pursue further immigration opportunities there. And so I think that what we see in the data is that if we're not providing a pathway, that someone else will, because U.S. training is really valuable. And often we see international students overrepresented in a number of fields. They only represent about 5% of all, you know, higher education students. But at the same time, in certain programs, they can be up to 80% of the population. And this is, you know, in things like electrical engineering or, or really advanced STEM fields that we have a serious need for, for our security, you know, and our economic needs. And so to know that even just through one very narrow program that Canada is offering, that we are losing thousands of students. That was about 40, it was about 45,000 overall, but 40,000 international students. So we're not losing quite the same number of Americans, but to lose so many international students, when we know based on the statistics that they are concentrated in fields that are most important to our national security, I think that is very concerning and something that we need to continue to think about as well, because we are investing our human capital. If, even if these individuals are paying tuition, we are still investing our human capital in educating them. And then ultimately we're ending up educating, you know, another country's best and brightest, so to speak. So I think it is definitely concerning and something we need to consider moving forward in our immigration policy. What are some potential solutions? So I think that, you know, realistically, a common pathway for international students is to go from the, you know, F1 where they're a student, then they get their OPT, and then they will go on an H1B. That's a pretty common pathway. But we don't have, with the cap on the H1B, there is not really, there's a slight carve out for uh, those who have received a U.S. master's degree. But other than that, like it's still not sufficient to meet the needs of the entire population of international students. And we don't really provide them with alternatives if they don't get through the H-1B cap. And the H-1B cap is so, it is outdated in a way. And so the H-1B is no longer able to meet those needs. So whether it is creating a new visa to provide opportunities for a lot of times what has been promoted is a STEM PhD visa or just those who are STEM higher education, like a master's or a PhD graduate for you know, STEM individuals, or for a broader visa for international students or providing a sort of exemption from the cap, whatever it looks like, what we really need to focus on is being able to provide a sustainable pathway forward so that we are not putting international students in the situation where they have spent you know, four, seven, you know, longer, periods of time, years of their lives in the United States, learning from us, you know, taking our education and then, you know, utilizing that to another country's benefit. I think that really comes at a cost for us. 
as well. So for me, just creating sustainable solutions through visa provisions that can create a longer term pathway that allow them to stay and work in the United States as long as they choose. I think what's also concerning, and you highlighted in your piece, is that Canada is actively recruiting uh, folks from the U.S., graduates from our universities who study in the fields that you mentioned, to come to the U.S. because of the restrictiveness of the H-1B lottery. I mean, you highlighted the piece, but last year, it was less than a one in four chance of just getting selected in the lottery to then have a chance for your H-1B petition to be considered. Um, so it, it's, it's you know, something that, that our audience is very familiar with, and it's certainly unfortunate. Um, but I wonder, Congress has dabbled with some solutions. One you mentioned, and I wanted to ask you a bit more about, was the uh, green card cap exemption, I believe it is, for STEM PhD students. Can you talk about what that provision was uh, or what that legislation was in Congress and what ultimately ended up happening with it? Yeah, so, you know, these things are all kind of up in the air. They get suggested and they not, don't necessarily have the political traction to get through. But it's something that I think is really important that it's been introduced, that this is an idea that people are somewhat familiar with, that it has gone around and hopefully it is something that will come back. But basically, it is providing an opportunity when we have wait times for green cards that, you know, can be 50 years long. When we have, you know, students that because of the way that the system is, like you pointed out, one in four are the only ones who are getting their H-1B evaluated. 75% of them don't get even evaluated because they get, you know, kicked out by the lottery system before they even get a chance to really submit their qualifications. Versus what Canada has going on in this express entry program is they're looking purely at the merits and the people that they are inviting are the top of the top. And that's how it ends up being so many people who are educated by American universities because we are producing, you know, some really very highly qualified individuals and skills that are in demand as well. So the STEM PhD exemption would provide them with a way to not fall into those wait times, the wait log, you know, the backlogs, and they would not be subject to the same country caps or to the same H-1B exemptions. So it's kind of looked differently when various groups have introduced the idea. But the idea is that if you have a PhD in a STEM field that is in high demand, that we really don't want to lose you and that we will create a pathway that exempts you from some of the you know, perils of our current immigration system in order to ensure that you are not forced to leave if you don't want to. And that is something that we, you know, currently our system does not provide because we have a lot of American students at American universities who are really interested in staying in the United States, but they just don't have a pathway forward and they end up utilizing those skills wherever they can. And that, you know, most of the times is not here. Yeah, and that, that leads me to really my final question for you, at least my final question is, is looking ahead at 2023, 2024, what's your outlook on what might be able to be accomplished uh, to improve immigration policy in the U.S., either from Congress or from the executive branch? So for legislative action, I think that perhaps a broad reform is it's not necessarily feasible. Right now, I would love for that to happen, but it doesn't necessarily appear to be a legislative priority right now. But I think that there are still people in Congress who are really working hard to create narrow provisions to meet the needs of our immigration population and our businesses and the general population in general. So I would say that 
there is still work being done in the Hill. We can't just write off Congress. They are working. There are bipartisan solutions that are being discussed in order to, whether it's work on the border or on our employment-based immigration system or DACA or anything like that, there is work being done on the Hill. And I don't necessarily think I'm holding my breath for comprehensive reform, but for narrower provisions, I think that it is possible and that people are really having those conversations, even if it's not necessarily in the news right now. But on an administrative level, I think that a lot is possible. And I think they have been doing a lot of work to try to do as best as they can. Like when we talked about the five proposals that we had pushed forward with the private sponsorship, they've already put forward Welcome Corps and some other things. And, you know, while we would love for them to expand this to other things as well, there is work being done on an administrative level as well. So I'm pretty hopeful that we will continue to see small amounts of progress. And at this point in time, everything is, you know, can be a step in the right direction. Small steps are really, honestly, very impactful and helpful to people who are in the system and people who benefit from the system. So for me, I, I remain rather hopeful and focused on the small things that we can do, even if we're still maybe waiting for something bigger in the long term. I think that's a good place to end unless Eric, you have any final questions for Cecilia? No, that, that was uh, no final questions here. I think uh, this has been a super interesting conversation, super insightful and can't wait to read more of your work. Thank you so much, guys. This has been great. Where can the listeners find you, Cecilia? And is there anything you want to plug about what the Niskanen Center or you are doing in 2023? So I haven't made the jump to Twitter yet, but the Niskanen Center is on Twitter. You can follow them there and some of my colleagues as well, Kirsty DePena and Matthew LaCourt are both on Twitter as well. And also just generally on our website, you can always find us there and you can follow my work and my publications there as well. So we're looking forward to doing some more interesting work, coming up with trying to come up with new ideas about how we can you know, benefit you know, and, and take advantage of the system that we have as much as possible. So I look forward to sharing that work with you guys as we move forward. Awesome. We'll be sure to share all those links in the show notes and continue to Sharon Scannon's work with uh, with our listeners and our audience. So, Celia, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Definitely learned a lot, uh, and we hope to have you back sometime soon. Great thank you so you. much. Hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Immigration and Mobility Decoded. Uh, if you watched this video on YouTube and you enjoyed it, please hit the like button and consider subscribing to the Envoy Global YouTube channel for more content like this. Uh, otherwise, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone.